Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Bob Zimmerman. He's a historian and an author. He runs a website called Behind the Black. He's a frequent guest on the John Bachelor Show is where I ran into him and heard him speak many times. He speaks about what's going on in space quite a bit. He's been on John's show probably close to 2,000 times. Uh, we we guesstimated offline, um, so he's uh, all about you know for right now uh, talks about space and uh, is looking at all the initiatives going on. So I wanted to get him on. So Bob, thanks for coming. It's my pleasure, Richard. I'm glad to be here. I should tell you that uh, I write. Uh, I I'm a star space historian, so I've written histories about the popular public on the history of space. I'm also a uh, I, 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 on my website I talk not just about space but the politics and the technology and the culture of our times as part of that. And one of the things I've noticed when I wrote histories about space is all past space histories before mine and maybe even since they tend to only talk about the technical stuff. Um, and the actual mission, but you cannot separate space exploration from the politics of its time and the overall culture. And when I do a history, I like to I include all, and that's the same thing I do with my website. You cannot separate the present history and ongoing things that are happening in space from the politics and the culture of our time. And so to understand it properly, I got to write about that as well. And so I do. And so that's, okay. that's part of what I'm, I'm about. Well, speaking of potential politics um to my knowledge uh i don't know if a lot of people are clear on this we've only been to the moon i mean the, well, the last time that we've been to the moon is what 1971 and haven't returned and you know why is that in your estimation yep um uh we got to the moon in 69 beat the soviets went back another Four times, uh, tried to go back five more times. One of those was Apollo 13. It didn't land because of problems and instead got uh, returned to Earth safely. Um, but after those five missions, uh, in which I like to say the astronauts, even with their rover, traveled a shorter distance in their time on the moon than a taxi driver does in a single day in New York City and Manhattan. So we did not see very much of the lunar surface, but we were there five times. And since then, nobody has been back to the moon. No human beings have been back to the moon. In fact, after a few more trailing missions in the mid-70s, no lunar mission of any kind, orbiter, occurred for almost uh, 20 plus years. And it only has been in the last decade or so that we've actually had additional missions back to the moon. Uh, unmanned missions to the moon. Now, why has that happened? Well, you know, I wrote a book. Called, uh, uh, the the everyone remembers the Apollo 11 mission generally, and they focus on the lunar landing. But I lived through that time, and what I remembered very clearly was that the mission that really had the most historical and cultural impact on the United States, without question. And I mean this without question, if you live the time, was the Apollo 8 mission to the moon. This happened in December of 1968. It was the first time human beings ever left Earth orbit. They were actually going someplace. And they went to the moon to test the system to getting to the moon, getting in orbit around the moon, and then coming back. They did not have a lunar module. Uh, just two little side notes about that mission. Um, uh, they... Uh, it, it, it did not have a lunar module as planned to act as a lifeboat. And one of the astronauts was Jim Lovell on Apollo 8. He was also one of the astronauts on Apollo 13. On Apollo 13, he did have a lunar module. And when, it, when there was a uh, problem, an explosion in the service module of the Apollo capsule, they survived by using the lunar module as a lifeboat so they could get back to Earth. Um, had the same thing happened to him on Apollo uh, 8, 
he would have been dead in five minutes. The, the risk that NASA took to do Apollo 8, they estimated, and they thought these were good odds, they estimated it was a 50-50 chance the guys would come back alive. So anyway, I knew that mission, and I remembered how the culture in the United States, like overnight, seemed to change after that Apollo 8 mission. And so I wrote a book about it. I wrote this book, Genesis, the Story of Apollo 8. It's, a, it's that story about how that mission changed, happened, and how that mission changed the nation. And now, this is, I'm trying to answer your question, why didn't, have we not gone back in 50 years? Kennedy sent us to the moon with the express goal of proving that freedom and capitalism can do it better than a command economy communism, top-down rule, whereby the government decides everything that should be done versus a free society where private enterprise follows its free urges to get done what it wants to do. And he sent us to the moon to prove freedom works better. But he used the Soviet model to do it. It was a top-down government program from the top. The government dictated where we were going to go, and then the government dictated the, the method of going. And then it asked private enterprise to build the vehicles and stuff that needed to be done to get there. And so it was built by private enterprise and by a free people, but the program was dictated from above. And the problem is when we won that race, one of the lessons we took out of it, out of the Apollo program, was that, the, that we need to have a space program. We need to have a government-run, top-down system for going into space. This is in total opposition to the American model where you have a free, chaotic uh, industry of people and companies doing what they want to do, selling products to people who want to do things, and uh, no one tells them how to do it or where. And following the Soviet model... Well, Kennedy, in a sense, was right. In this sense, was right because you don't do it as well. And so, what is what? What did we get? We got the shuttle program, which went for almost 40 years and did nothing but go around and around the Earth. And if you followed the shuttle program closely, and very few people really did, because it was incredibly uninteresting. Uh, I like to joke about how, as a science journalist, I would I would read the press kits that NASA would release about each shuttle mission, and they were expressly designed to make the mission appear as boring as possible. Because as a top-down government program, the goal of the shuttle morphed from trying to explore space and pushing the unknown and providing a service to others by producing a product people can buy. It morphed into a government jobs program whose only and sole purpose was to provide jobs in specific government uh, districts as well as uh, state districts, congressional districts and states. And so therefore, the goal of getting into space was um, superseded by the goal of keeping the job, the program going. And so it didn't matter if they accomplished anything. And so for 40 years, they just went around and around the Earth. They didn't do what the shuttle was supposed to do, which is to teach us how to build a reusable ship. They got it flying, and they just basically managed to keep it flying. And it was only after the Challenger accident, when they had foam come off uh, the uh, the external tank and hit the uh, the uh, the shuttle and damage it, and so far the people died when they came home. I'm sorry, it was the Columbia accident in '03. Um, uh, that NASA finally did the actual kind of engineering work and experimental prototype program does, which is try to figure out what's going wrong and to fix it and to change things if it doesn't work. Of course, they were doing that only because they were going to end the program very shortly and they just didn't want anyone to die on a mission. They weren't really doing it to think about how to do things. So anyway, this is uh, – so – that's why we did not go back to the moon. We had a space program that was a program, not a chaotic industry, that did not want to go to the moon, didn't want to go anywhere. It just wanted to spend money. So if, if uh, people were to do a manned mission, where should they go in your estimation? What would be the most interesting place to go right now? Well, that's up to them, to be very honest. That's the idea of a free system. People decide where they want to go and what they want to do and where they think it's good. Right now, the, the most, most science seems to point to head for the poles of the moon because it's thought, and it's not proven, but it's thought that there might be ice in the permanently shadowed craters of the moon. These are the craters at the poles. Because of the inclination of the moon, 
the sun never shines at the base of those, the floors of those craters. And so it's believed possible, and there are some, there's some data that suggests that there might be ice in those permanently shattered craters. Now, if you've got ice, it gives you a number of things for any uh, base you want to operate. For one, it gives you oxygen. For another, it gives you oxygen and hydrogen, and oxygen and hydrogen can be used as a fuel. You combine them and you get energy. That's what the main engines of the shuttle were using, oxygen and hydrogen. It's a very powerful combination. And so uh, uh, that's where most, uh, uh, go, most projects aiming for the moon are looking. If you're going to set up a base, that's the place to go. China would like to get there. The United States wants to get there. And that's, that's the aim right now. Now, of course, there are private uh, efforts that might want to go, and they, they look at the same kind of thing because there's a uh, possibility of helium, uh, an helium isotope that can be used for a number of reasons that can be mined on the moon and therefore be a resource to, to sell. And so, uh, once again, that's the kind of things. But, you know, I, I, my thing here is my focus is let people free to do what they want and go where they want to go, and they'll pick and find. And it's serendipitous. You really don't know what is going to become a valuable resource on the moon until you get there. Um, when the settlers first came to the New World, to North America, the first British settlers, they thought they would be mining gold and sending it back to Britain, and that would be the real wealth that would come out of uh, North America, uh, the first British colonies. It ended up, they almost starved, because, and they didn't get any gold. They eventually found it was tobacco that made them their big money. And they didn't know that. There's no way to know that until you get there. So you can't really answer the question. Well, tell me about current day uh, space initiatives. It seems like um, SpaceX is leading the charge and actually getting things done. But tell me, what's your perspective? Well, okay, well, get, let's get back to, you know, why we didn't go to the moon for 40 years with the shuttle. Um, what has been happening the last decade in the United States is a transition away from the Soviet model and back to the American model, going back to an idea where private enterprise does it, where NASA is no longer the builder, designer, and the runner of everything. Instead, NASA becomes one of many customers. The government, the federal government of the United States, has a, a, uh, an, an outright need to be a player in space exploration, both for military, security, commercial, and prestige reasons. We must participate in this. But that doesn't mean that NASA should do it. What NASA should do is ask the American people to provide it what it needs. And now that's the transition. We've been shifting away from NASA building it to NASA buying the product from others. And that has been a slow process because it's a turf warfare. It's like a cold war within the United States, whereby people in the government are this, the, 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 our version of the Soviet Union wanting to protect their turf and prevent them from losing control of things. And then there are others who say, no, we should leave it to the private enterprise to do it. Let's ask them to do it. They can do it cheaper and faster. And in the process, NASA issued, the first contracts were issued at the very end of the Bush Jr. administration in 08, and these were contracts for private companies to build rockets and cargo um, freighters uh, unmanned to go and supply ISS. And the two companies that successfully did this was SpaceX with its Falcon 9 rocket and its Dragon cargo capsule and uh, Orbital uh, ATK, which is now part of Northrop Grumman. They built the Antares rocket and the Cygnus uh, cargo capsule. And so those two were providing services to, to NASA to get cargo to ISS, and NASA had nothing to do with the design or building of these things. And they were built, they belong to those companies to sell to others if they wish. And SpaceX um, uh, has very successfully sold its Falcon 9 rocket to many other people to become a, one of the most valuable companies in the world right now, and basically steal the entire commercial launch market from the Russians and a good percentage of the launch market from the uh, Europeans and basically become one of the most successful uh, companies in the world. 
All right, so that succeeded. Now, at the same time, then NASA, following that, NASA decided we're going to give contracts to two companies to build man capsules to bring people up and down. And so they issued contracts to SpaceX to, to upgrade its uh, Dragon capsule and to Boeing to build its own capsule called Starliner. And within five, let's say six years, SpaceX upgraded uh, the Dragon capsule and has flown humans to space. And in fact, uh, they have two people in space for, uh, oh, wait, hold it, let me back up. You might want to edit this because they're going to hopefully land over okay. the weekend. Okay. Uh, so when this airs, I don't know what's going to happen. But they have two people. All right, so that, that Dragon capsule was upgraded and it's now successfully flown two astronauts up to ISS. Uh, and NASA now has plans for, and that was a demo mission, it now has plans to send um, uh, two more astronauts on a six-month mission come late September, and then four astronauts on Dragon come next spring. And uh, th this is now success in a very short period of time for very little money for NASA. They spent total on this about $3 billion to get the Dragon capsule manned. Now, this compared to the last vestiges of NASA trying to build things for itself. It's been trying to build what it calls the Space Launch System and the uh, SLS and the Orion capsule now since 2004. And they spend, for those two uh, rocket and, via and uh, capsule, they spend about $3 billion per year on that and have every year since about 05. And they will not launch SLS with any people on board until 2023, 23 at the earliest, I think. So it's going to take them almost 20, NASA almost 20 years to launch a single manned mission. And in that period of time, it's going to cost them about $50 billion. SpaceX yeah, provided them a manned capsule. Yeah, a manned capsule in about six, seven years uh, for $3 billion total. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Now, I should also add that for seven years, six, seven years, it took SpaceX to develop that. I'd say about 30 to 50% of the delay was not caused by SpaceX. They could have flown sooner. It was caused by NASA's bureaucracy trying to slow them down as part of the turf war between the, the agency that wants to control things and uh, the attempt to break away from that and allow uh, freedom and private enterprise to operate. And so you're asking now, what is going on right now? What's going on right now in the United States is the we're finishing out right now, I think, the transition from government-run operations in space to privately-run uh, uh, industry that the government as well as private and the private, the private sector can buy. So you've got SpaceX, you've got uh, uh, Boeing with its Starliner capsule hasn't flown yet, but when it starts flying, it's going to be able to fly tourists. I should point out SpaceX already has contracts um, to fly two different tourist missions, one to ISS and one just orbital, and there will be no reason uh, next year not to fly those missions. So they could happen within a year that you're going to start to see private citizens flown on a private spaceship for commercial reasons. And then on top of that, NASA has now made, struck a deal with a company called Axiom to put modules on ISS to build its own portion of ISS, but those modules will belong to Axiom, not to NASA, and Axiom will use them for whatever it wants to do, and it already has a contract with SpaceX to launch tourists to its portion of the space station, and that portion, by the way, can be separated with ISS when ISS is going to be decommissioned and will be planned so that it can be its own independent flying space station eventually, and they can use it for anything they want. And now, we talk about tourism a lot, you know, humans to space pains because they're tourists, yeah. but the, uh, the potential for manufacturing in a weightless environment is, has been known to be uh, limitless since the shuttle program. Pharmaceuticals, there are medicines you can make in a weightless environment that you can't make on Earth that could really be uh, precious to the human uh, body and to civilization. And there was one attempt in the shuttle program to do such a thing, but it failed because, unfortunately, the first sh shuttle accident challenger shut down commercial operations on the shuttle. Um, so there's uh, great Bob, financial potential there with having a private space station. Yeah, Bob, a now, quick hold question on a minute. Here. I have a cat that I have to get out. 
Oh, well, okay. before you ask the next question, Richard, I have a cat I have to remove from the room since he won't meow <laughs> on the tape. Hold on. Okay, no problem. Sorry about that. I'm back. No, Go no ahead, problem. ask the question. Well, what's the metric? Um, Excuse me? Is it price for for the what's the uh, for the price of putting stuff into space? Is it uh, cost per ton or per kilo? And what is that amount approximately, and what will SpaceX bring it down to if they're successful with their uh, their new rocket? Oh, yeah, I haven't talked about their next generation rocket, but let me give you an idea what SpaceX accomplished when it got into the market. When when uh, Elon Musk, he made his, money, his initial billion dollars from PayPal. He was one of the founders of PayPal, and he, he was bought out uh, and had suddenly a lot of cash in his pocket. And he was always a space geek. He wanted to go to Mars. He wants to go to Mars. He wants to die on Mars. So he decided, I've got a lot of money. Why don't I run... Why don't I pay for a private, um, a private uh, science mission to Mars? And so he did the research and he found he himself could easily pay for the spaceship. But he found he had no launch service he could afford. At that time, in the mid, uh, early 2000s, in the aughts, they, they, all the rocket companies charged a fortune. There weren't very many. They weren't very interested in innovating or competing. Uh, and so they charged a lot of money. You had to pay something like $200 million per launch. You know, there are a lot of people use the per kilo or per pound cost, but I think it's much easier to just go by what the launch costs. And they usually charged around $200 million for a launch. And uh, he said, I can't afford this. And then a light bulb went off in his head, and I actually saw him give a speech describing this. He said, well, you know what? I can provide that service for less money, and that will give me a rocket. So he started, he started his company, SpaceX, to build rockets. And he built the Falcon 9 rocket, and right off the bat, he reduced the cost from $200 million to about $67 million per, car per launch, which was cheaper than what the Russians were charging by about 30%, and he started to take away their business. He then announced that he was going to, uh, uh, he wanted to reuse that rocket. He wanted to reduce his cost even more. And he saw no reason throwing it away after every launch. And so he announced that he was going to vertically land the first stage so it could be reused. Now, I will tell you that I've been, in the, I've been following space for, since the 60s, and I've been writing about space as a science journalist since the mid-90s. And I've been told repeatedly by managers and engineers in the major launch companies throughout the aerospace industry for years now, decades, that it was physically impossible to land a first stage. That even if you could successfully do it, um, uh, it, it would use up so much fuel that you couldn't get your payload into orbit. And even, even then, it was going to come back in such, with such stress and damage that it wouldn't be reusable. So there was no point in trying, and of course, no company tried to do it. Well, they, and they said to me repeatedly, it's impossible. Well, I will tell you, and you know this as well as I do, I'm sure, and your listeners, because it's something that got a lot of play, and people were very excited, because it was really like science fiction watching. SpaceX now more than 50 times has landed its first stage of its Falcon 9 rocket, and is now routinely reusing them. And what's made it possible for them now to lower the cost of their launch from $67 million to under $50 million. And they're also now recapturing and reusing the fairings. That's the shroud that protects the payload. The companies were routinely, once it was in a space, you dump it, you don't need it anymore. And SpaceX captures them and they reuses them. And so they figure they recover 70% of the cost of the Falcon 9 launch. And so they, may, they can reduce the cost. They could probably charge as little as $25 million for a launch, but they don't have to because nobody else can go that low. And so they charge somewhere, I think, between 45 and $50 million for a launch if you use a reused uh, booster. And uh, so, also, is, of course, they continue to capture market share. You know, in some industries, they'll have a price per pound or price per kilo. Is that going to be an important metric for space? a price per ton to get a payload into space or orbit at least? I mean, within the industry, that's kind of, to my mind, it's kind of the in the weeds discussion. Yes, within the industry, they'll talk about per pound, because if you've got a rocket that can put up 100 tons, 
you might have many, many payloads on board, and so they're going to divide up the cost of the launch between them, and they'll need a, they'll need a metric for dividing up the cost per payload, and they use that even now. But I'm coming from an, an outsider's perspective. I want to give my readers and li- your listeners uh, context and some understanding of where the industry goes. So I go per launch because it really gives you an idea of how the overall cost is down. Now, let me talk about okay. SpaceX's next rocket. This is the rocket that they're now trying to develop down in Boca Chica, Texas. That's on the southern tip of uh, uh, the state, uh, right on the coast. And this is, they call it Starship, and that's the upper stage, and Super Heavy, that's the, the first stage. And it's a rocket that's going to be designed to be able to put into, pay, into orbit 100 tons, which means it's about comparable to the Saturn V rocket that sent the astronauts to the moon. The Saturn V rocket was like launching a 40-story skyscraper. Big, big. It weighed something like 7 million tons at launch. But it was expendable. SpaceX wants to make their Starship Super Heavy completely reusable. And it's actually completely doable. And if people would just simply think a little, as SpaceX does, there's no reason why it can't be done. Because first of all, they've demonstrated that they can reuse the first stage vertical landing. They know how to do that. And so they're going to make Super Heavy the first stage. It'll be much more powerful. It uses a much more powerful uh, rocket engine that they've developed. It's going to be uh, re- uh, reusable. It'll land vertically. And they're basically just going to uh, scale up the technology they've got for the first stage of the uh, Falcon 9 for Super Heavy. For the second stage, Starship, they're going to basically use a combination of space shuttle uh, technology and their own first stage landing technology. Because the shuttle over 40 years proved you can bring a second stage back from uh, space and land it and reuse it. They would land it on a runway. Well, SpaceX's first upper stage starship is going to come back, use some of the uh, landing technology, you know, the travel through the atmosphere to slow down that the shuttle used. But when it gets close to the ground, it's going to upright itself and land vertically using the technology they already know how to do uh, to bring it down vertically at a launch pad. Now, when they've done that, they will have a rocket ship that can put up as much as 100 tons into orbit, which is about... Let's see, 20 tons into is about five times the payload of a Falcon 9 rocket. And they figure, because they're building from scratch to be reusable, uh, with the knowledge of how to do that, that the cost per launch they think could be as low as $2 million. So SpaceX might be able to launch its 20 tons on a Falcon 9 for, um, for uh, let's say, $25 million at low cost. They're going to be able to put on Starship Super Heavy two, two, uh, 100 tons for $2 million. So you do the math how much less that is per ton. It's gigantic. Now, when that happens, suddenly a lot of people who now cannot put industry into space or profit-making operations into space because they cannot afford it, they can't make a profit, suddenly they can make a profit. And so the customer base widens tremendously. And so you get business. And suddenly you get a, a thriving industry. That's, that space station company I mentioned, Axiom, they're not the only ones. There's two others. They suddenly have much greater capability to build, build stations in orbit, to do manufacturing in orbit. And most important, Starship Super Heavy can return 100 tons from space, which means you can bring back what you manufacture. And so the, is, the, is the there potential any, um, here is limitless. Yeah. Well, this is fantastic. Is is there any need for SpaceX to develop a horizontal, reusable, you know, platform like the shuttle, or vertical is perfect and it's better than horizontal? It's their choice as a company, and they have the solid experience landing vertically. So why shouldn't they use what they know how to do? Other companies might come along with other points of view. For example, there is another company that NASA has hired. NASA's not building it. NASA's hired. It's called Sierra Nevada. They are building a mini shuttle uh, about the size of a pickup truck, maybe a little larger than that. Um, think of a small uh, uh, boat, like a, you know, someone owns, a little larger, um, that will be able to be launched vertically, bring cargo to ISS, and then we'll come back to Earth bringing cargo back 
much smaller than the shuttle, and it's small, but will come back and land on a runway. Now, this is, they have a contract to provide cargo, much like SpaceX and uh, Northrop Grumman had contracts to, have, to bring cargo initially. If that succeeds, and they hope to have their first flight next year, um, if that succeeds and they start successfully, repeatedly bringing cargo up and down to ISS, well, there's no reason why they can't get another contract down the road to start bringing people up and down with their mini shuttle on a runway down on a runway. And so that's that company's choice. They will have the knowledge on how to do that. Um, and in fact, it might be in the long term a better way. Maybe. We don't know yet. It's going to take competition and freedom and the, 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 the buyers to decide which is the better way because the people who these, these products are being made for are the, are the buyers. And the buyers will decide, well, you know, I would rather come down vertically for this reason. And someone else will say, no, I'd rather come down horizontally for this reason. And they'll eventually decide. Market will shake out and we'll find out. And that's only two companies. There's more to come. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see and how it plays out. So um, what other innovations, uh, you know, we spoke about this offline. You mentioned a, um, a way to fix and reinvigorate and reuse existing um, satellites and other space debris that's in orbit. Can you talk about that technology? Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, right now in space, there is something called a mission extension vehicle. It was built by initially by Orbital Sciences, which is now once again merged with Northrop Grumman. And it was designed to be a robot, unmanned, that would fly into space, attach itself to a uh, communication satellite that is perfectly good. Nothing's wrong with it other than it's run out of fuel. It doesn't have fuel anymore. And so because it doesn't have any fuel, they took that satellite and they put it into a graveyard orbit because they couldn't use it anymore, but it was perfectly good. And so what the MEV does is it goes up and the, the, that commercial satellite, communication satellite, was not designed to have anything docked to it. But the MEV is designed to use the nozzle of, the, of that satellite as its docking port. And so it docks to the nozzle. And then the MEV then provides the fuel and the thrusters to orient and control that satellite now for another five to ten years. And so what you do is for a relatively cheap cost, instead of building a whole new satellite, you send up a very simple um, um, basically attitude control system and you suddenly have brought your satellite back to life. And they've done this. The MEV was launched and it attached itself to a, a dead satellite and brought it back to life and it's now operating again. And they have a second one that's going to launch. It's going to attach itself to a, an operating satellite. Instead of, wait, instead of waiting until they've run out of fuel, they're going to attach it to a satellite that still is operational and, and hope they can do this without interrupting operations. And they should be able to do it. They wouldn't take the risk of not if they didn't think it would work. And, and then keep it in operation continuously when its fuel runs out. Now, this technology, this is profit involved here. This is a private operation trying to make money from communication satellite companies because they have a need. They have old satellites that could be extended, and, and Northrop Grumman is offering the MEV for this purpose. But the technology can be easily adapted for a lot of other things. give you an example, the, uh, the best example, the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, it's, it's the one item on the Hubble Space, Space Telescope that, has needed, that needed the most replacement over its whole life when they were flying shuttle missions with the gyroscopes. The shuttle was given six gyroscopes. It needs minimum of three for three dimensions to be accurate, accurate pointing. And those gyroscopes, no matter how much they've upgraded them, they eventually die. And right now, the Hubble Space Telescope only has three working gyroscopes. When one fails, they're going to go down to one gyroscope mode so they can keep operating it, but they will no longer be able to get the sharp pictures they get right now. Well, if you develop an MEV that ha it already has the docking capability, it has the, the maneuvering capability, all it would need to figure out a docking method for, uh, for the Hubble. It would have to be different, but that's doable. Um, you figure out, because they did attach a grapple uh, system to uh, Hubble on its last repair mission. So you, uh, you attach to that, and then an and MEV could maybe provide new gyros to orient the Hubble telescope and maybe extend its life even longer. I mean, it was launched in 1990. It was only supposed to have a 15-year mission. It's approaching 30, it's 30 years now. 
There's no reason why it can't be extended longer. And that's an example. And this is a case where the government is the customer for Northrop Grumman, buy the product. There's many other things, such as space junk. Uh, you know, a lot of things get into space that either they're damaged or they're no longer useful. Or upper stages, for example, reach orbit, but they're not useful. Most um, upper stages are designed to eventually have their orbits decay and return to Earth and stay out of the way. But there's a lot of other stuff up there that could actually cause problems, uh, collide with other satellites or even manned vehicles. Well, here you go. Here's a uh, robot cable of, of rendezvousing with space junk, and then you just have to develop the technology to grab it and then deorbit it. And there you go. You suddenly yeah. made money doing such a thing, and that's how freedom works. Yeah, you know what would be interesting is um, a satellite that's run out of fuel, let's say that's owned by a government, you know, if I negotiated to buy it, and then I set up this uh, this recovery unit and brought it back to life, I could... It's like an asset now that uh, you know I can take over for a fraction of the cost already in space and use for my needs, for instance. Yes. Richard, that's a really good idea, and the key to making that happen has to do with the uh, attitude within the federal government, within NASA, and within NOAA, which does weather satellites, uh, and even in the military, to, to allow them to uh, excess their no longer useful assets in space. You know, after World War II, the federal government instantly just, uh, you know, uh, released almost all its leftover war materials. That's why you had, uh, you know, uh, surplus uh, Army-Navy stores, because they were selling the stuff that was just handed back to the private sector to use as ever they will. And that's, the government's become resistant to doing that. But once they begin to do that, people can do exactly what you're suggesting, yes. And, and they can do it with more skill and speed and more efficiently than the government will because government tends to be very cautious. But a private person can come up very quickly with a new idea and try it and take a risk. And so, yes, and I think that kind of stuff is going to be happening very soon. Has there been like an assay of what's in orbit around us? I know that probably some stuff is, you know, a secret, but uh, of the stuff that's known, like, does anyone have an assay of what's up there? Well, uh, uh, the American military, now the Space Force, it used to be the Air Force, the Space Force uh, uses its technology to track every, every object in space bigger than, uh, I think, just a couple of inches across, maybe less. They really have good technology. Because every piece there, even a tiny, even if it's a, a nut, you know, for a screw nut, uh, if that's moving very fast and it hits you, you can really do significant damage. So they try to track everything, and they have really good assessments. Uh, you can't, you know, there probably are websites you can go to that would show you uh, all the space junk in orbit, but we're just looking at a cloud of material. Uh, and in many ways, that exaggerates how crowded it is because space is kind of big and these objects are relatively small. But nonetheless, they have a very good assessment of what's up there. Um, and that includes the military satellites where you don't necessarily know very well or at all how they're doing, what they're doing, or maybe even not very well what they're doing. They keep that under wraps. All militaries do that. But you know the objects there, and you know its size and mass, and you know approximately what its per, you know approximately what its purpose is. That's known. And so yeah, there is a good assessment out there. So if someone who's in the business and wanted to try to see if they can clean up space junk, I will tell you there are private companies right now trying to develop technologies for grabbing space junk and deorbiting it. The Japanese especially have done several test flights of CubeSats trying exactly this to see if they can capture space junk. They've tried nets. They've tried harpoons. <laughs> They've tried a few different <laughs> techniques to see if they can capture uh, space junk. And uh, they've had some success, especially with the netting. And I think that's going to eventually come about. There'll be private enterprise going up there, hired by any number of people to clean up the space junk. It'll be to everyone's benefit. I could see the private sector teaming up with the governments to pool their monies to pay for private companies to do this kind of work. And that would be a very common sense thing to do. Well, when someone launches a satellite nowadays, um, do they have to know where the space junk is so they don't launch it into a, a you know into an orbit where it'll get destroyed? I mean, like how can people safely launch anything right now, or is or is it not really crowded? It's okay. Um, every launch, every launch, uh, the launch as well as the satellite 
considers what's up there in its planning. And this is just computer tech, you know, software. They, they have very good software to figure out where and when and how. And so they launch making sure they're not going to be going into any path of somebody else. And then they get into orbits where they're very aware of what's around them. And uh, uh, the military, the Air Space Force will issue uh, warning notices to the participants, the owners of satellites, specific owners of satellites, if they think those satellites might have a chance of collision. I'll give you an example that just happened about a week ago. Um, there was a CubeSat that was launched. A CubeSat is uh, a, something as small as the palm. You can put it, it's four inches square. You can put it in the palm of your hand. Some CubeSats, they take those and put, put them together like building blocks to make slightly larger satellites. But the fundamental unit of a CubeSat is four inches square, 10 centimeters. sits on the palm of your hand. So there was an actual technology test satellite in orbit that was, going, that was testing the, the, the use of thrusters on a CubeSat. The thrusters were actually within the square frame of the CubeSat. They were testing to see if they can do this. And uh, the tests were readily successful, but along the way, they got a warning from the Space Force that they might collide with another object. And so they used their thrusters to guarantee there would be no collision. So that fits it in. This ties in, Richard, with what's happening within the entire space industry, in a sense, CubeSats, because the space industry itself is, is bifurcating, splitting between bigger and bigger stuff for manned exploration and manned commercial operations and smaller and smaller stuff for the unmanned stuff like communications, GPS, uh, reconnaissance and surveillance, Earth observations for uh, resource purposes, it's, it's getting smaller in that area, much smaller. You, CubeSats are becoming increasingly capable, as I mentioned, with thrusters even. And so it's cheap to put up a tiny satellite like that. Up to now, CubeSats have had to go as secondary payloads on big rockets, which means they don't control when it's launched or the orbit it goes into. Well, because of the increase in CubeSat launches, exponential increase, there's now about 100 companies trying to build rockets, startups, trying to build small rockets designed to launch small sats, tiny sats. This gives them, they makes them the primary payload. They can pick their orbit and their time of launch with much more uh, efficiency. And there's actually one company, uh, Rocket Lab, that's actually already launched successfully a dozen times with small sats. And there's at least, like I say, a like about 100 others trying to get going. And there's about four others that are very close to starting having real launches in the next year or so. And that's, once again, there's profit to be made. So people are following the money to make money. And, you know, every one of person who chooses to build a rocket uh, to make money then they could have gone into, you know, um, dry cleaning. <laughs> but they choose to go into rocketry because that excites them. And so they are contributing to being able to go into space but making a profit while they do it. I want to ask you one last question that will probably get your, your hairs on end, get you excited. But who governs orbits, you know, low Earth, high Earth orbit, et cetera? And what, what is that governance looking like and shaping up to be? And I know you won't like it, but. You know, what's happening? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. I have found in my writing for the last 20 years about space an amazing number of Americans who think somehow that they have to obtain permission from the federal government to go into space. And you do not. You're a free American. If you wish to build and launch a rocket and go into space, no government can stop you. Yes, you have to get licensing. You've got to go through the procedures. But they do that mainly to make sure there's no conflicts or problems with other operations. They, the government does not have the right to just tell you yes or no. They have to justify that in terms of common sense. But you as an American have the right to do this, period. And uh, that's our Constitution. That's what this country is built on, freedom. That's what I've been talking about all the, the whole show practically. You know, uh, uh, we, we, were, we went to the moon to prove that free people can do it better. So you have in the United States the freedom to do this. Other countries, not so much. You know, China and Russia are very top-down still. They are authoritarian societies. And so the government dictates who can, who can do what when. Um, in space, and this is a whole different subject that would require another hour of discussion, um, we have a treaty called the Outer Space Treaty the U.S. signed and China and Russia signed and all the space nations in the world have signed. And that, contra that 
UN treaty states that no nation can claim any territory in space. And that provides, that creates a very serious problem for the future for private enterprise. Because if the United States cannot claim any territory in space, it means it cannot establish its sovereign laws in that territory. Which means if you're a private company with private investment, your investment is threatened if you, all, if you try to establish mining on the moon because you don't really have solid legal control over your property. And there's been a great effort in the last few years by a lot of the Western capitalist nations to try to come up with a way to get around the Outer Space Treaty. The Trump administration, I think, has come up with maybe the best answer in just the last six months. They're proposing something they call the Artemis Accords. This is in connection with their attempt to go to the moon in 2024. But their idea is that anyone that wants to partner with the United States on that project to do lunar exploration has to sign a bilateral agreement that they will respect the territory occupied by the United States and vice versa. We will respect any territory occupied by the other country, which means we will be allowing ourselves bilaterally between these two countries or others to establish our rights within those territories. And Trump administration has tried to, tried to tie in every single country in the world in this. Both China and Russia have expressed strong opposition, no surprise. But if all, all the other Western capitalist countries tie in, and India is interested, Luxembourg, which I haven't talked about, but it's a very important country in terms of space exploration, and the uh, United Kingdom and the European Space Agency, all the major other players have been in deep negotiations and have seemed very receptive to this idea. And that might get around that problem. Um, Essentially, though, the countries that are against it are those that don't allow their citizens the freedom to do this if they wish, and those that are for it are those nations that uh, believe in freedom and allow their citizens to do stuff like this. Well, where, where does space begin? And if, like, who owns, uh, you know, I know countries and places have air rights. No one owns it. Where no one owns it. Let's be clear about this. For spaces, depending on the American definition or the European definition, space begins either at 50 miles or at 100 kilometers, which would be about 67 miles. Um, and there's, there's, that's never been settled, though. In the last 30 years, most people have accepted the European definition, though uh, recently there's been an effort to bring the American definition back. Um, so that's when space begins. No one owns it. No one owns any of it. Uh, the UN treaty says it's owned by uh, common ownership of all mankind. But let's get realistic here. Yes, the Earth is owned by all mankind. But if you want to have practical achievement within the human sphere, you've got to allow individuals to have solid control over any property they uh, occupy so they can do with it what they need to do. And so... Um, um, that's where that's that's the essential thing. And so then the next step is determining how ownership will be doled out properly. I, I wrote an op-ed for uh, the Federalist uh, about two years ago where I said one thing Trump could definitely do that would really change things and get around the Outer Space Treaty is to propose some form of homesteading for nations, whereby nations could claim territory uh, within a reasonable amount that they all agree on if they occupy territory on any body in space. Uh, you know, they don't get to claim the whole moon. They get to claim a, a reasonable amount of territory around where they land or set up their base. And everyone agrees to it, so everyone knows what the rules are. And then what happens is there's real incentive to compete to get there and to grab territory. But, you know, once yeah, again, then, it's competitive like, and there's a set of rules. They should, they should use the rules of go on the moon. If you acquire a certain amount of territory, as it flips to become yours. Um, well, no, that would be a bad idea because that would again threaten someone who's invested money. You don't want to do that. Someone who yeah. obtains a piece of property and has invested a lot of work and money to, uh, to build it should have the right to maintain it. You can't just take it away from them. Oh, no, you know, I agree, I agree. There is something oh, called... Right, you know. yeah. yeah, all right. Well, anyway, you know, <laughs> the trouble is there's too many Americans today who don't even understand the principles of their own country that made it possible for us to become so successful and wealthy. Freedom is one of those, and uh, ownership of property is another. You, you have the right. God, Bill of Rights very clearly says they can't take your property away without, without paying you for it. And we don't mm. follow that very much anymore we, by edicts. Uh, we have governors and, and federal officials no, just walking around taking people's property. They don't have the right.
And so the same thing applies in space. You've got to establish rules that will protect people. Yeah, I agree. Well, Bob, um, so people can learn more by going to Behind the Black, your website. And I know that um, you're doing a fundraiser for July, which is ending, but you know, you're self-supported. So uh, you have like a tip jar and ways that people can help support you directly. Yes, that's right. I, I, this in Ju the month of July, I ran a uh, month-long fundraising campaign to celebrate the website's 10th anniversary. I've been doing this for 10 years. I've been doing. I've been writing about space longer than that. But 10 years ago, I decided the future is my own website of privately funded with donations and subscriptions. So at the start of the 10 years ago, I've done like 22,000 posts and probably more than a thousand essays or long or long articles on subjects. And, um, and so I ask people to donate. You can go to the website for free. I post regularly on space and astronomy and cultural issues at great length, and I research and do stuff. I've done a lot of posts on the COVID-19 the COVID um, disaster and why this has been a very unwarranted panic, and it's been used by a lot of politicians for the acquisition of power rather than to protect the population. And I've analyzed this by data because I'm a data guy. I like to see what the facts are. And so people can come to the website and read it freely. And then I, I was asking people to donate. And uh, uh, I will say that July, and they can still do it. The tip draw is still on the website. You can donate or subscribe, $2, $15 a month, uh, or any amount of money you want to donate. And people have been doing this remarkably, gigantic amounts. It's an endorsement of my work, and it provides me freedom. I am not, rec I am not beholden to an editor or a publisher. I can write anything I want. And that means when you read what I write, you're getting my un unadulterated, clear opinion and uh, analysis. And so you can disagree with it. I allow free commenting on my website. The only rules are you don't say any obscenities and you don't insult other people. You act like a civilized adult. And I will say that the commenting uh, threads on my website are probably the most intelligent on the web because people have to act like civilized adults or they get banned. And so, yeah. uh, uh, you know, people can disagree with me vehemently, and they do, and I sometimes learn I'm wrong, and I have no problem with that when I'm wrong. It's, it's my theme of my life. Consider it possible you're mistaken. So, yes, people can donate, and they can go to my website and check it out, behindtheblack.com. I've got my books there, like Genesis, Star Parade. I wrote the book on the Hubble Space Telescope called Universe in a Mirror, and I've also written the book on the Soviet-era manned space program called Leaving Earth. That won an award as the best popular uh, history in 2003. I've written a lot of books, and uh, I've written a lot of stuff, a lot of words over the last 30, 40 years. Well, great, Bob. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.